Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Matt Weber. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Nebraska. Yes. The great state. What a beautiful place that must be. Right. (laughs) Thanks for joining me. I was wondering if you could just give us a brief kind of rundown of your personal history, your dental training, surgery, and what you're currently doing. Yes, sure. Absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It was nice to get the invite. Unexpected, but I enjoy being on here. So thank you. Yeah, for sure. I grew up in a small town in western Nebraska, right on the border of Colorado called Ogallala. It's kind of a far agriculture type town, about 5,000 people. My dad is a was a dentist in that town. and My mom was a dental hygienist. And so I kind of grew up in that town, kind of living in the middle of there. And then after I graduated, I went to the University of Nebraska for four years there as an undergrad. Nice. Um, met my wife, then I went to dental school in Lincoln as well for another four years. Was really interested in oral surgery from the very beginning. My older brother is a year ahead of me in dental school. So he was always going to go back and work with my dad. So I kind of was interested in doing something a little bit different. And so I applied and whatnot, went through the whole match program, ended up at Parkland. I really loved it down there in Dallas for six years. That was a great decision to go down there. I really enjoyed my time. And then, you know, I was trying to figure out what to do after residency for the last three years or so. Kind of decided to go back to my home state, a town that I never lived in, but it's about two hours away from my hometown, right in the middle of the state, kind of started to practice. And there wasn't any really great available real estate. So we ended up building a building too, which ended up being a great decision, I think as well. Wow. So you've done a lot in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, it feels like a lot longer. Been out about a year and a half, but it, yeah, it's been good. Finally starting to settle down a little bit. We're done hiring employees and things like that. And we kind of have the right number of people in, in the office. And so things are starting to settle down a little bit. And you say you felt like it was the right decision to build from scratch. Why do you say that? I thought a lot about it. I think that earlier on, it's going to be a little bit more stressful because the cash flow is not there immediately. Getting credentialed on insurances and billing and figuring all that stuff out takes a little bit of time. But once you do, you can build it exactly how you want. In the last five to 10 years, technology is, is changing everything in this specialty so rapidly. Buying a practice is good, but I think you're going to end up changing the way a lot of things are done anyway. Mm-hmm. It depends on how much you value what you're putting into it. There's other practices I could have bought for about the exact same exact amount of money that I ended up buying and building for and buying all new equipment. And I ended up spending about the same amount of money, but you know, I have the assets now. And, and I don't, I think that we, when we're buying practices, kind of overvalue the referrals that you're buying because that could change overnight. And I just didn't want to put a ton of money into that. Okay. Well, that totally makes sense to me. I mean, I'm of a similar mindset. And in talking with you before, it sounds like your implant program is really dynamic and kind of picking up over the last months to years. Yeah. Can you share some of the things that you're doing and some of the pearls you've picked up along the way? Yeah. What it's termed in our specialty is digital workflow. 
I listened to Dr. Shafee give a talk about six years ago or so to our residency program. And he just talked about the revolution of the technology. And it's not complicated, what we call the digital workflow. It's, you know, you place the implant, they come back after it's integrated and you do the torque check, you know, while the healing button is off, all you do is you, you put on a digital transfer piece, you know, a impression, digital impression coping through an intraoral scan, most likely done by one of your assistants at some point. And then you take a bite and then you have all that digital information, basically the impression, send it to whatever lab they would like. And then, you know, the crown should be there waiting for them, the patient, by the time they go back and see their dentist. So the dentist doesn't have to take an impression, doesn't have to have that all that wasted chair time of bringing them back in and delaying things. And so it's just efficient from the patient's point of view, much less appointments. I always tell them it's about three appointments in three months time. We can have a tooth on there two of the appointments with me and one with your dentist to screw it in. You know, it's efficient. The patient likes it. The dentist likes it because it cuts their overhead quite a bit, saves some chair side time. It's much more accurate. I have gotten some pushback from dentists that are just like to control things themselves. And I'm totally fine with that. If they're on the fence, I kind of tell them that when you take an impression, your PBS impression, you send that to the lab, they are going to pour that up in stone. And then that stone model, they are going to do a internal scan of that, of the same, this scanner. They're going to use this scanner to take a scan of that and then design it and mill it digitally. So all I'm doing is saving possibility of air and time. Number one, with the weather conditions outside, who knows how that impression is going to change. The stone, all those things we learned in dental school, I could introduce air. All I'm doing is cutting down steps and saving an air. And once you kind of get the scanner down and and the flow and you whittle down which labs you can work with and which ones get a good product, it becomes very smooth. And then it kind of feeds on itself. Yeah, I think you end to get more implant referrals just because it's an easy process for the dentist once you can kind of get it set up. Okay. The patient who has a flat cover screw comes back and you have to uncover it. You put the helium abutment on. Are you scanning it right then or are they coming back another time? Yeah, good question. So if it's an anterior tooth, typically I actually put them in a temporary in that type of situation immediately if I can. And if I get it to torque uh, more than 30, I'll put a, a temp on it if the patient wants to. If they are wearing a flipper and the healing abutment is about flush with the gingiva, I can see it. I don't really need to make a decision to take it off. And it's number eight. It kind of depends on the dentist. I like to put them in some PMMA temporaries for a little bit just to get the margin exactly where I know it's going to be. I can adjust the contour as well and kind of bring it back a little bit to have the gingival margin I can play with a little bit that way too. But if it's not a highly aesthetic demanding patient, I think you can be comfortably go straight with the impression at that point, even if it's number eight, make you feel pretty good about everything. In a posterior tooth, I hardly ever cover things up typically with cover screws anymore. But if I'm pretty worried about the stability of the implant, for sure. If it's a posterior molar, a lot of times I'll scan it that same day. And I think you can get a pretty good idea. I mean, if it's one millimeter below the bone or flush with the bone, typically you're just going to use a one millimeter height abutment and be, you know, you, I think you can pretty much predictably say that the gingiva will be two millimeters above the bone and be comfortable with that in the posterior. Because even if a little bit of metal showing, Probably not a huge deal at number 30. The next question is, I guess, you know, why you decided to do that? Is it why you decided to scan it and have all that work set up? Is it more of a referring thing? Is it 
other benefits to it? No, I just think that if you can provide the best product in the most efficient way, you'll win over the long run, just big picture wise. So I was a startup. I needed money. I need to pay some bills. You know what I mean? And so I needed to get busy. That alone, I think, yes, it definitely is a referral business thing. I also enjoy being involved with it too and doing the best I can. It just made sense to me when I listened to him talk. Everybody that had done it had talked about kind of such an explosive growth in their practice from it. Yeah. Another benefit that I don't necessarily talk about a lot is that you can really control the product that ends up on your implant. You can have some sort of say in what lab it goes to for sure. And then making sure it's screw retained and not cemented on there. And, you know, you can kind of direct it a certain way. If it's the dentist doesn't do a lot of implants and this and that, you can kind of tell the lab, you know, I just like all my things to be screw retained if possible. So they can kind of dictate that too. I think over long run, working with a certain number of labs and then having some say in the prosthetic components that end up on there, I'll have less failures. But I don't know that for sure, you know. Right. And I like to, the fact that they're coming to see you because they have to see the surgeon, or at least that's usually the standard of care to see them at the whatever three or four month mark. Yeah. And the fact that you can check the stability of the implant and take an impression, and it kind of probably eliminates a whole appointment for the patient at the dental office. Yeah is cool as well because that's saving your patients time resources money right and i have a decent amount of patients that in a rural area with a big draw that come two hours to see me or an hour and a half it's not uncommon i'll have a couple a day probably and so if we can saving them an appointment or two or three is, is a big deal and it's helpful for them so if we can do it in three appointments in three months i think that's pretty good that's really cool and so you scan it you got you have the file do you just send that to the dentist and then they communicate with the lab and order it or you're like picking color and doing all that stuff? We don't do any shades. Part of what we've added to our referral form to either get the shades, select the shade. And that's, you know, part of the growing pains that dentists now know. And they, when they're referring an implant, the patient's right in front of them, they go ahead and grab a shade. But for a little bit, they might have had them come back and do an appointment, just a shade appointment and, or something when they're ready to restore it. I would recommend not getting into the shade game at all. If they want advice on what prefab abutment to use and the height, I can help with that just by looking at the x-ray and say it's a millimeter below the bone. It's probably a 1.5 millimeter abutment. Stock abutment's good. They can be screw retained. Yeah. So I, I'll help a little bit with the abutment because I have the information right in front of me. I mean, that's pretty easy. The prosthetic component, I like to phrase it as all I'm doing is transferring the information. I leave the design and the shade up to the dentist in the lab. So what we do is we take that and then we send a letter that day. It's an email that goes out that day that we take a scan to let them know, here's the information about the implant. It's this number. It's the size of implant. And so then the lab has all of the information and then they communicate. Then it's their job to kind of talk with the dentist about what kind of restoration, what do they want to make it with and that kind of stuff. And then at that point, it's the lab and the dentist communicating and I'm kind of out of it. How much time does it add on to your appointment for the second stage visit? Like, It's a, all completely driven by my assistant. I have one assistant that uh, two days a week, it's just all she does, kind of all is every 30 minutes appointment, she just unscrews the healing button. I come in kind of quickly and do the torque check and then yeah. say everything looks good. She 
will put on or I put on the digital transfer piece, the impression coping. She'll do an upper scan, a, a lower scan, and then take that off and put back on the healing abutment and then a bite. And then that's it. So it takes no more time out of my schedule. And that's what's appealing to me is that it doesn't cost me any more time, but it could be a lot of value added. Yeah, for sure. For the patient there, you check it, then you step out so you can keep doing your stuff. How much longer is the patient usually there doing that? The scans are getting pretty fast. So we book the appointments every 20 minutes. I guess if it was a, a tour check without, we'd probably book it for 10 or 15. The main thing is you just need enough, you need a room, you need enough space in your office to kind of dedicate to that. Okay. Yeah. You need to have an assistant that's well-trained and kind of how to do that. But you can train. Nice. It's not, compl- it's not overly complicated. It just, it, there's a little bit of growing pains with it for sure. What were the biggest, like two or three challenges you faced? Cause I know you've said that it's kind of a pain at first. There's some labs that are can be tougher to work with, especially if they don't do implants very much and things like that. And dentists are particular about the labs they like to use for sure in situations. And so I, the dentist and I maybe have come to the conclusions that maybe we should try this lab for these implants or something like that. Ultimately, I think we've whittled down the number of labs that we work with that we will send that we send the scans to. And that's been a conclusion that we've come to with a, a few different dentists and it's not been adversarial of anything, but we both were like, maybe we should try someone else who does this more. So I would say that, and it's the same type of growing pains you have in dental school when you start taking your analog impressions. It's, you know, making sure you got the contacts good on the scan and and you have those all in the scan, making sure there's not any digital errors or duplication of images and everything merged correctly. And we've, I mean, we've had to repeat a handful of scans for sure. But you just get better at it and more efficient and things like that. Nice. Communication's huge. Uh, the dentist, you know, nothing frustrates them more is when you take a scan and then, you know, nothing, the information doesn't get communicated correctly or on time. And then we had a few things like that that we had to work through and maybe an email didn't go through or some protocols, just making sure we get the information to everybody, the lab and the dentist and the lab immediately. Okay. And what additional costs did it or does it require of you to do this? As far as the variable overhead costs, uh, not much because you can sterilize and reuse all the uh, scan bodies, the impression copings, all your, uh, your unscrewing and screwing back on the healing abutment. So there's no extra cost there. It's just the scanner and your employee's time and then a room in your office at least a day or two a week or three a week, just kind of scanning and things like that. So, you know, I'm already going to have that assistant in that appointment and pay her to be there. So it's not a ton more, I think, in the employee overhead costs, but it's the scanner. You know, those can go anywhere from 15 to 40,000-ish, somewhere in there. Okay, got it. And real quick, do you do scans and 3D guides, printers and stuff? Do you have all that in your office to do that for placement? I'm familiar with it and I've dabbled here and there. Nothing significant as far as cost-wise for a, a printer, but it's honestly just too much to keep up with to make sure it's working to change the resins out. I just took up too much of my time troubleshooting yeah. and working through that. For temporaries, they can mill PMMAs that are better than the ones I can print and I don't have to deal with it and they fit perfect and it, I can get it the next day. So it's not a huge thing with that. With temporaries, with models, you know, I just send them to the lab and have them print them and send them back. I found it to be too much. Unless you have an employee that can figure it out, it's too much of my time to keep up with it. Got it. Okay. 
So no, I don't, I don't have any 3d printers or anything like that. Got it. And then what is the stuff that has changed or unique things you're doing with the full arch cases in your digital stuff? Yeah. I get frustrated about the analog conversions after you place the implants and then, you know, you get done with the surgery and it was awesome and and everything like that. And then you've got two and a half more hours of just getting those in or whatever, a few hours to get those things to fit. And it's frustrating. And then never thought that the analog conversions ever looked spectacular. You know, they're good, but they don't look as good as what like PMMA trials do or anything like that. Mm -hmm. We started going to the PMMAs immediately instead of doing conversions in our office and the PMMA is just, it's becoming more popular, but it's, it's basically a milled kind of resin that is a little bit stronger, but also has some flexibility to it that you can, that you usually want to do nowadays. A lot of people are using them for maybe a trial run after the implants have integrated before you go to something like a zirconia, just to dial in some occlusion and things like that. And it doesn't have a ton of cost of reprinting them because they're already designed. And so you can do a couple of PMMA trials after the integration to dial in occlusion. Well, I just is, it's nicer to get to the PMA earlier. So we just actually take it like a analog impression and then relate the bytes through another kind of impression and then take all of that to the lab where they kind of overnight mill us one and we screw it in the next day. So our patients are actually going home with some healing caps on the multi-unit abutments and then coming back the following day and, and screwing in the PMAs and you know, we don't have to adjust them really. The occlusion is usually right on and they look great. We've been doing that and it just saves me a, a lot of hours in my office and supplies and kind of headache to nice. where, you know, I can, it frees up my afternoons to do a podcast or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. And patients don't, I assume most patients don't have an issue with, you know, going for 24 hours without teeth, right? No, we haven't had that. It's been an issue. It never came up with anybody. They um, Usually people go home that day and just kind of sleep and relax and don't go out anyway. And then they just come back in the next day. And it's nice to see them the following day, see uh, how the pain's doing, things like that, making sure they're not totally dehydrated. And it's nice to get your eyes on them. And then, yeah, it's a really quick appointment. We only book them for 30 minutes. We just unscrew the cover white caps things and then put on the PMMA. And we haven't had to adjust much. So nice. They're not like swollen and painful and like you don't have to re-anesthetize or is that as not typically. And you know, we've been doing that expirol with them too, which okay. has been great. That lysosomal bupivacane, the last yeah. about three days. And it always surprises me about how much pain that the full large patients don't have because it's kind of a barbaric procedure sometimes, you know, doing it kind of always bone away. But yeah. I'm always surprised how much pain I do not have afterwards still surprising very cool sounds like you're doing some really nice cutting edge stuff and i don't know yeah i kind of i didn't come up with all of these things i just kind of listened to some people talk about them and they just made sense at times they have worked and if anybody has any questions about it i'd be happy to get more specifics and stuff like that i'm i'm, all, I'm available so well on that note i had four rapid fire questions for you all if right your, if your game okay yes <laughs> First question is, what is the best book you've read in the past year? There's two good books I'd say that I liked. There's one by Ray Dalio called Principles. That's a very good book. He's a good writer, kind of an intellectual guy, uh, has a different way of looking and seeing things. Very successful guy that has a lot of good information. And then there's one about leadership 
about kind of like discipline equals freedom by Jocko Willink. He's kind of a, a Navy SEAL guy. Yes. He also Love has a podcast. Him. Yeah. And so that's good too. It's kind of, it seems obvious when you're reading it, but it's really good information. I think you can stuff to fall back on. Yeah. So much of our practice and our success is depending on our leadership skills. Mm-hmm. And we're by and large just not taught that. I mean, you're certainly not really taught that in residency or dental school, probably more from your parents, but right, it's critical to be able to lead a team. Yeah, it's probably the most important thing they do in our office just because you're really only going to be as good as that, the people that are there with you. And it's really easy to get frustrated and pissed off, but it's a lot mm-hmm. harder to be take some accountability and say, you know what, maybe I could be doing things a little bit differently. Yeah, that's why things aren't working and things like that. So yep. that is helpful. Excellent. Next question. What has been the most helpful non-oral surgery thing that you've done that helps you with your o- daily OS skills? Yeah, there is. It's weird, I guess. It's, a, it's not really like meditation or yoga per se, but I think that having like 30 minutes of isolated, dedicated, quiet time where I don't do anything. And I get to the office a little earlier and I don't check my email or anything like that. I just have time to like think is helpful. It's not like a hobby, but it's something I've started where it's like, all I would say most of anything, a good idea that I've had or I've implemented has been thought of at that time. Just because if I don't, I just don't have time to think through this case or that case or how I would do this or why I would do this differently. Yep. I guess time to reflect and then kind of anticipate, you know, the worst thing I do at work is check my email early because then it kind of starts all the busy work. And that's the stuff that's just, it's good to get it done and it needs to get done, but I'm horrible at checking my email for a reason. It's just, I don't find it. I don't want to find a lot of value in it. I like that. So important to take time to reflect and just quiet time. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Next question. What forcep do you use to remove tooth number five? Oh, I bet you most people would use an ash in that situation. Probably, huh? I'm not an ash guy. I actually don't even have an ash. I'm a universal forcep guy. Standard. I don't even know the name. Is that 150 or 151? 150. That's 150. Okay. I'm a 150 guy. That's kind of my go-to. Yep. Now tell me this though. When you're using the 150 on the, the premolar, doesn't it slip when you're trying to twist it? I mean, or does it, because the ash, I feel like a lot of people use it because they can grip it and it's moving. I feel like a lot of people use the ash so they can get their, their body weight behind it and kind of, <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like that's where people use that, get the overhand to put their shoulder down into it. I don't know. I, I have found out that getting nice expensive forceps is generally worth it. Totally. A well-adapted 150 or 151 will take me a long way. For molars, yeah. I don't use any universal forceps. It's always a, a cow horn or, you know, the, I call them an upper cow horn, but it's got the two prongs on one side and one prong on the other. I, I love that thing. I think it's like 88 or 77 or something like that. The 89 and the 90? Yeah, there you go. 89 and 90. Yes, I'm the same. I love those. And my last question is, what is your favorite quote? Do you have a quote you live by or something that you like? There was one. This is kind of stupid, but there was one on a Mission Impossible, most recent Mission Impossible movie, I think, that was at the very beginning of it. It might be from the Bible, actually, but the devil whispered in my ear, you're not strong enough to withstand the storm. Today, I whispered back to the devil, I am the storm. (laughs) Awesome. How sweet is that? So great. Right? Love that. Yeah. So that's I like that one. It gives me a little bit of fuel. Very cool. 
Anyways, well, those are all the questions I have for you. I think you said a lot of super helpful stuff. You bet, man. Anytime. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.